Hello and welcome to another episode of the Psychosocial Distancing Podcast as we move away from social psychology and into an intercession, a flex course, as it were. Uh, we're going to do Psychosocial Distancing Goes to the Movies to, to kind of continue on from what we were doing in the last episode, at least for the next couple. Uh, so I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Chadborn, and of course with me as always is Thomas Brooks. Hello, hello. It's good to be back for the flex course. And so for the next couple of weeks, uh, we're going to be picking a number of psychology-themed movies, kind of talking about what we think about them. Uh, if they're historically based, we'll talk a little bit about the histories and historical accuracies of them, but, but mostly just to, to take a break, enjoy, possibly recommend some, uh, some good psych-themed uh, or psychology-centric movies. And so today, we, uh, we watched uh, High Anxiety. Yes, a Mel Brooks film from 1977. So High Anxiety follows the uh, story of Dr. Thorndike, which I thought was hilarious. This is very fitting. Um, right. Who is moving from Harvard University to the Psychoneurotic Institute for the Very, Very Nervous in California uh, to serve as the head psychiatrist at the Institute and essentially the plot follows him adjusting to the new job and undercovering a plot from the other psychologist and the head nurse, Nurse Diesel, who's probably my favorite character in the whole movie, as they try to keep the patients in the hospital against their will to make money and will kill in order to maintain control over the facility. You say you say that's your favorite character. I liked uh, Little Oldman. Little Oldman. Little, little old, old man. man. Professor Little Old Man. Uh, just because, like, when I when that that first bit dropped, uh, I, I kind of lost it. I was like, I want to be Professor Little Old Man. <laughs> I liked him because he was very much like the very stere- like there. This movie delved a lot into psychology stereotypes, and Professor Little Old Man was your like Holocaust fleeing. German psychologist in the United States, you know, teaching the art of psychology to all the Americans who are interested. Um, very, very Freudian-esque. Yes, this movie was very Freudian. I will say before we get into the Freudian stuff, the movie was dedicated to uh, Alfred Hitchcock, the horror and suspense director. And there were lots of scenes that I loved because they mirrored different yeah, Hitchcock there's a movies. Psycho reference. There's a, the bird. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. The birds. In the, shower. Um, the birds. There was also Vertigo when he was like experiencing his anxiety fit and he was falling into the spiral. So it's for those of you who enjoy Alfred Hitchcock. There's lots of little Easter eggs in this movie that are hilarious. So I guess we should get into the Freudian stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do want to say the, the first thing, um, kind of at the beginning, there, there were a lot of times in this movie, we, we spent a lot of times last episode talking about ethics. There are a lot of ethical issues in this movie if we're talking about kind of a, a psychiatric clinical perspective. You know, we've got this, this professor mm-hmm. not only working alongside, but treating his student. That's a big, iffy conflict of interest barrier. But then again, you know, a lot of the kind of villainous characters and whatnot in this, I mean, obviously don't act ethical. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the werewolf bit was one of them where they were trying to figure out if the patient actually did need to be in the institute because he was paying, what, like $16,000 a month? Yeah, an obscene amount. And yeah, and so the, the you know villainous doctor decides to replicate his symptoms or exacerbate these fears of symptoms uh, all behind uh, Mel Brooks, uh, Dr. Thorndike's back. And yeah, so it was very, you know, again, huge things that you shouldn't do but for a off-the-wall comedy it all kind of works in the grand scheme of things Mm -hmm. or the fact that the driver it was the driver also a patient it does seem to be that the driver was to some degree a patient and so was the it seems that the guy with the 10 teeth might have also been very likely a patient Uh, yeah so the the psychologists are employing the patients to uh, drive them around and kill each other. So I will say in terms of gags though, I think my favorite gag was when at the very beginning of the movie, when he's getting driven to the Institute and uh, what's his name? Alfie, Balfie, Barfy. And I just finished watching the movie and I can't remember his name. Yeah. The, the one who's being unethically, uh, labor is being unethically exploited. He's like, I think that uh, Dr. Ashley, wasn't actually was uh there was foul play with his death and then like the music came on with the orchestra and they're looking around and then a giant bus drives by with a full-blown orchestra playing the song it's a class such a classic like mel brooks moment because but every every time there was this big reveal there would be this noise and everyone would look up and look around it's it's a very good good Mel Brooks bit uh, that I, or good just classic comedy bit that I think works really well. Uh, yeah, that was probably one of my favorite gags in, in the movie. There's also something weird about the uh, restroom scene when he got to the airport after they landed and that dude like pretended to be an FBI agent to lure him into the bathroom to have sex with him. I have no was- idea what that's about. The only thing that I can imagine, because like the entire intro scene involves a bunch of like really weird misinterpretive moments. So there's like the woman who looks like she's kind of screaming and coming at him with the umbrella. And then she goes and hugs her husband and he's freaking out. Uh, and then there's the guy who's like, you have to come with me. And he's like, in, into the bathroom? He's like, all right. And then the guy like opens his jacket and he's not wearing any clothes. Mm-hmm. And... And then, you know, he runs away from that. And there's, like, the awkward of him, like, stepping off the elevator is really awkward. And, you know, everything. And he's like, this, you know, this, uh, you know, this airport's really intense. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think part of it, at least the way I perceived it, was it was very much a, like, meant to put you into this, like, weird, anxious, cringy, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, mindset that that you're you're supposed to experience just the sense of like awkwardness mm-hmm. or just like uncomfortableness at the whole situation, like everything that kind of plays out in the first you know five minutes of the movie. Mm-hmm. And I also think that the music and the camera use in this movie really like added to that. Even though they kind of like then went meta with it and started like getting exaggerated with the camera angles because they'd like crash into windows or crash out of walls and stuff like that. But I thought that that really added to that whole like, I'm I'm on edge this whole movie, but I don't quite know why kind of feeling. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the shots were good. The cinematography was really good. There were a couple of moments where 
I thought it was like the framing was really nice. The guy complaining that he wants to get out. He's like, I feel like I'm trapped in a web. And like the, um, the window shadow behind him looks like a web. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of a little on the nose, but that's, it's almost that like Alfred Hitchcock homage uh, to a lot of that. The, the shot under the table, was, I thought was a really fun scene. That was my favorite when they're talking about what to do and they're like picking up the coffee and that was an excellent. They, they, Keep keep putting everything down in front of the uh, in front of the camera. Yeah, no, that was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what I have. The, there were a couple of notes that I made. I thought the the hypnosis session where they start fighting it made me think. When I'm thinking of like therapy involving conflict, uh, made me think of uh, Albert Ellis's REBT therapy. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it REBT? Very conflict oriented. He was known for getting in arguments with his patients, with his clients, to basically tell them, no, you're wrong. This is a maladaptive thought. You're an idiot. Well, maybe not that far. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of reminds me of that, almost like, uh, like I, I, I keep, I'd love to ask him one day, but, but whether or not Dr. Phil prescribes to Ellis's therapy, because he's very argumentative. Aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> is there a theory or is it just good TV? I, I mean... From Ellis's standpoint, I think there's a good argument as to to why um, you would do it. it. Ellis's point was, I mean, never to get to the point of like fist fighting your clients, but you know, maybe some people need to be told, like, no, you're wrong, and this is why you're wrong. At least that was kind of his his, his mentality. The, and the the main difference between that and you look at someone like Beck's cognitive therapy is is that Beck is a little a little gentler. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we tend to find that the, the gentle approach works best, but you never know. Some people might need to, you know, might need a little, little extra oomph to, to get the point across. Mm-hmm. Maybe we need to ask a uh, clinical psychologist about this. Do we when need to fist fight our clients in order to get them to understand why their thoughts are maladaptive? <laughs> I think if we're talking about ethics, they're going to say no. <laughs> But what if there's another psychologist that acts as like the uh, referee? <laughs> like a good psychologist, bad psychologist. Yeah. You know, in the room, one who's really argumentative and one who's like, no, it's okay. Just breathe. Like, let's talk about it. So mm-hmm. at, at this point, in, if we're kind of going through the timeline of the movie, there's all this weird stuff happening. He's, he's trying to figure out why are some of these, these patients there? Why are they, you know, they seem to be fine. Looks like they're kind of covering up. He meets the um, the big industrialist who apparently thinks he's a dog, mm-hmm. and then which I think is is kind of the is kind of moving into the second act of the movie is is him going to the psych conference. Yes, and let me just say they were spot on by putting it in a higher regency. Let me say, <laughs> like it looks like every SPSP I ever went to every conference i've ever attended like that hotel was perfect and and i will say like there were a lot of people in the room for his speech but he was the keynote speaker mm-hmm. and so if, if, if you're the keynote speaker if you're like the famous person brought in everyone comes to your your speech but everyone else gets a smattering of people in the room one of the things that uh i thought was interesting one of the uh we could talk about the people on the wall for one of the People, the, the guy that introduced him and the guy that was asking questions, his name was Dr. Kohlberg. And uh, that reminded me of our uh, mortality development 
conversation from our first episode. I was like, Lawrence Kohlberg. I was like, I feel like that's probably not Lawrence Kohlberg, but I want to think that it is. I I loved that whole that whole speech bit, especially the, the Q and A afterwards. Mm-hmm. They're asking him about all these Freudian things, penis envy, toilet training. And uh, uh, right as he's about to answer the question, this guy walks in with his two little girls. And he's like, oh, I brought the kids. Sorry about that. And he's like, so pee pee envy. <laughs> the woo-woo. <laughs> and it's just, it's just that, that moment because like, I've, I don't know if, if you've ever had an experience like this in class, but I had, a, I, had a, I had an older student in class who brought their, their kid. And I mean, this wasn't like, like a five-year-old in class. This was 12 or 13-year-old. And kid was very well behaved, but it was one of those things where I was like, what can and can I talk about now? Mm-hmm. I don't think my students trust me to bring their kids to class. <laughs> Especially for, I mean, they did for the learning development class, like my teaching education class they did, but like for the sex class and the death class, no way. Never had a kid. It's probably, it's probably for the best. This was a social psych class. And I remember in lecture, he looked kind of hesitant and then he raised his hand. And I was like, you know what? What question do you've got? And, and that 12-year-old that asked like two or three questions that class that were better <laughs> than the rest of the students in the class. But it wasn't a situation where like someone brought their six-year-old into class. And I was like, all right. I can't talk about this today uh, or mm-hmm. maybe I should phrase it better, but I, I don't know. I, I can't, uh, I don't even, I'm not even trying to think of like a conference situation. Cause I could, I could, I could actually envision that happening at a conference, someone bringing their kids or something like that along. And then someone coming up to give some talk. But I would imagine at a conference nowadays, they probably wouldn't care. They would probably just give their talk. Yeah. No, and I don't think I've ever really seen any kids at conferences, to be honest. Um, And that was kind of something that I read that was really positive about the COVID shutdowns and like all the conferences moving online was that people who didn't have childcare to fly across the country to go to a conference to show their research now have the opportunity to do that. Let's see. In the conference on the wall behind Dr. Thorndike, Dr. Thorndike, there were several pictures of uh, psychologists on there and they had uh, Freud of course they had Otto Rank who was a student of Freud who's considered the father of counterculture they also had Adler and Carl Jung and then one name I didn't recognize uh, Brothers it's like this attractive blonde woman at the very end and I was like who are you we need to research you Joyce Brothers the original actual psychologist yeah no definitely a real psychologist she's she's got her cred but she popularized pop psychology did you read into her like her story at all i i don't i don't know like her her entire background but like i know of her and i i I know the kind of basic you know nature of of that kind of psychology that she helped Mm -hmm. to birth even you know even kind of a forerunner to to some of the non-psychologists who kind of get into like self-help and um, you know things Mm -hmm. like that so she got her start because she won this game show time it was called the $64,000 question Um, and she won it because she her husband was a fan of boxing 
and they had her on to as the novice to compete against the expert on boxing trivia and so she became a boxing expert to get on that show and win it and which actually led her to become the uh first female boxing commentator on live tv which i thought was cool and then she went back and won the follow-up series the six uh sixty four thousand dollar challenge where they brought all the challengers back and the winners back and then she like blew away the competition again. And then uh, with that one, there was a big uh, scandal involving like all the competitors cheating. And she was the only person who was cleared of cheating. And so she beat all the cheaters. <laughs> so nice. that's really, really that's impressive. Like- she had two of her own shows. She wrote for four decades in the Good Housekeeping magazine. Um, she was considered a public crisis counselor because all of the TV shows that and like late night shows would like drag her out whenever there was a national emergency like Princess Diana dying or the Challenger explosion or the Columbine shooting. And so that's really like what she's known for and like all of her accomplishments. But I pulled a quote from uh, the authors of Women in Psychology, Stevens and Gardner. And they said, uh, traditional psychologists smile subtly when her name is mentioned, and they often complain that she actually does more damage than good to the field, which is still the argument with pop psych. Yeah, and it's it's really kind of odd because she's very different than what we would expect to see from some of those like radio personalities who aren't really psychologists but paint themselves to be, or you know, even like someone like Dr. Oz, or, I mean, to some extent, Dr. Mm-hmm. Phil. Definitely Dr. Phil. Um, I'm, I, I give him a lot more credit than I used to because he does have mm-hmm. a degree. Like, he is trained. He did the ethical thing and, like, gave up his license when he went into television so as not to have these conflicts of interest. And so, like, I mean, I, I, look, at, I look at some of the stuff that he does. Like, he's got the knowledge in the background, but, but yeah, there is that sort of putting people's problems out for the world to see. And um, sensationalizing family disputes and mental illness. But Joyce Brothers is, is very different than that in, in terms that, that if she's doing, you know, writing and let's say like good housekeeping or like coming out and basically just offering positive words of support to help a country in a time of mm-hmm. crisis, you know, helping, you know, on Letterman or something like that saying, hey, like this is this is how we should take it. This is how we should look at this. This is this is you know a way to help us cope because we're all being exposed mm-hmm. um, to that. That's something that we can argue is really positive. It's very different than what we would expect for for kind of that traditional negative kind of mm-hmm. pop psych, where where it's you know it's it's watered down to a point where it's not actually right. Um, there were two instances I read where. And her show, like the show that she hosted, um, there were two different people at different times that had called in to her show and they were uh, suicidal. And one of them was going to jump off a bridge and the other one was going to take a bunch of sleeping pills. And she successfully talked both of those people down in time for emergency personnel to get to them. And so she actually kind of modeled good psychology practices in that instance. So I kind of put her up with Dr. Ruth I can't remember her last, Dr. Ruth's last name, but uh, she did in the 80s a big public health. Westheimer, yes. So she's a sex educator and psychologist who served a very similar role for the public. She is a national treasure. Did you know that she was a sniper in the Israeli army? 
No, but I mean, if she, no, yeah. I didn't know that, but that makes her even Yeah, no, she was the type that she was like, oh, well, I'm done serving my time, so I'm going to go become a psychologist. Just fantastic. Her Twitter page is still active, and it's phenomenal. Like, she talks about dental dams, she talks about cunnilingus, like, it's a great time. I'm going to have to go follow her. Mm-hmm. No, you definitely should. So that was, that was, a, I actually learned something from this movie. Um, not because, like, from the movie, but because of the movie, I actually learned about the pioneer of popular psychology, which was really cool. I had not heard of Brothers before. I guess that's what we need to do. If we're going to be pop psychologists, and this is coming from someone who's, you know, written a fandom book, <laughs> very pop psyche, that, that to be more like Brothers and less like Dr. Phil. Mm-hmm. To, to, to kind of focus on the psychology and promote it well. I mean, that's kind of what we do right now. Yeah, it's arguably, we're trying to do a very pop psych podcast. Mm-hmm. Kind of going back, and this is kind of like, move, I guess we can touch on this at the end, but like the weird relationship this movie has with Freudian psychology, psychoanalysis, um, just to kind of go back to that uh, keynote speech because he was disputing a lot of psychoanalysis like about the penis mv and the toilet training and he actually gave a good analysis that like this was all men doing this research and promoting this and so obviously it's going to be a very uh male dominated perspective um and that kind of harkens to like karen horney who directly argued against penis mv because of that reason um, I love I love, I love the her same... counter to that, just to add. I don't know if we talked about that in, in kind of our beginning. To her counter to that, the womb envy. Right, the womb envy. Men, men achieve positions of power because they can't birth life. Right, yeah. It's a good foil. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was like, so he's discrediting psychoanalysis on this end, but also actively engaging in it. And then it eventually solves his problem at the end of the sh- movie it turn- with his high anxiety. It turns out it was the relationship with his parents all along. Right? Which, I mean, I guess if we're getting into, like if you're doing a movie stereotyping psychology, mm-hmm. on one hand, if you have this platform, debunk what you can. Like call mm-hmm. into question some of the issues. That was amazing. But if also, if you're going to stereotype psychology, like that has to be what sol- saves the day right parent problems mommy issues that has to be what saves the day Mm -hmm. and this movie was laden with mommy issues there are a lot and daddy issues yes like can we talk about nurse diesel (laughs) and montague and their bdsm adventures (laughs) where he calls her mommy yeah yeah that was that was a thing that was the thing. And then our our love interest, Daddy Issues, too. Like, she's very intense. Yeah. It's, um... I was... I mean, it, she plays the... The actress who plays that character, and I had her name, but the actress who plays that character, like, she's in almost every Mel Brooks movie, just as the, um, the, the, the villain doctor. He's in almost every Mel Brooks movie. And she's very intense in a lot of those movies. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I love the scene where uh, Thorndike was getting att- his like the villain was attempting to murder him in the phone booth and so all it was was like these grunts and heavy breathing and she's like hello well oh 
well, I don't know who you think you are, but women don't go for this sort of thing. And then she like leans back and she's like, so what are you wearing? <laughs> Jeans? I bet they're tight. <laughs> So she was intense, but I just thought that that was the weird thing. Like the the relationship with psychoanalysis in this movie was very weird. Yeah, a lot of um, a lot of kind of borderline sex jokes or full blown sex jokes, uh-huh. uh, a lot of parental issues, you know. But again, if you're going to make a movie that kind of lampoons psychology in the 1970s, you you hit all the marks. Mm-hmm. Or at least what was popular in psychology in the 1970s. I mean, there's stuff that if you're a psychologist, I think there are things that you would pick up on that you would maybe want to throw in. But for the general audience, like, this is what psychology, I mean, for the general audience today, this is kind of what psychology still is. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, no, I have to remind, like, when I tell people I'm a psychologist, I have to constantly remind them that I'm not a helping psychologist. And they're like, what else do psychologists do? What is it? The, it's the Milgram the Milgram movie quote, my daughter would tell people that he's not that kind of psychologist. He's an experimenter, an experimental mm-hmm. psychologist. And I'm like, oh yeah, that still doesn't work. It still doesn't help. There's a, I don't know if we've talked about it on the podcast before, but my aunt is a helping psychologist and she calls me, I call her shrink and she calls me rat runner. <laughs> and that's the, uh, that, that's the term for non-helping psychology or rat runners. I like that. I'm going <laughs> to... Because the behaviorists used to run rats in mazes. And, and speaking of behavior, uh, I, think, I think outside of that, the gag at the beginning, what has to be my favorite scene in the movie, just because of the whole premise, is when they're trying to get on the plane towards the end. Yes, yes. yes. I thought that was some excellent social psychology in that scene. They, they, he looks at her, she's nervous, and he says, look, if we just follow what we planned, and remember, we have to be loud and annoying because people don't pay attention to loud and, ignore, uh, loud and annoying people. And they're basically an old, bickering couple, and everyone gives them space. They just let them go through. He gets through security checkpoint with a gun, because they just don't want to deal with them. They're just like, it's not worth it. Like, just let them go. Just, just let them mm-hmm. just let them get through. And it was beautiful. Yes. No, I saw that. I was like, oop, I got to write that down. Because that is some excellent social psych. Like, obviously, you can't get onto a plane with a gun in, like, the 21st century, regardless of how loud and annoying you are. But just in any other situation, if you want to, like, get in and get out, like, and not have people mess with you, oh, Yeah. The people around you will go out of their way not to involve themselves in in two people, especially older people, disputing with each other. Like just just let them let them do their thing, let them have their argument. Mm-hmm. I'm just gonna stand over here, let it happen. Let it happen. Oh, as I say, the only other note I have is is just a note at the end saying, "I need to see if there's research where someone's phobia has suddenly shifted." when they realized, I'm not afraid of heights. I'm afraid of parents. It's that all along, and suddenly it goes away. And if you could shift their phobia to something else. I mean, I, I'm sure you could, you could see someone's like anxiety about a fear shift if like, the source changed. Like, what, what mm-hmm. caused that? But it was very sudden, but also very psychoanalytic. 
Mm -hmm. That little aha moment. Like I've delved into your unconscious and you're scared of parents and not heights. Yeah, it was, it was very, but again, a very fitting end to the story. And they lived happily ever after. Yep. The camera pained through a, wind, uh, a whole wall oh, well, this time. Just keep going. Maybe they won't notice. Just keep going. One thing that I thought was interesting about the movie was that it kind of plays into the stereotype that people have about psychologists, that they're all just as messed up and that they use psychology to understand their own problems. Um, because I feel like every psychologist in this movie had some sort of problem. They were all, that they, they all basically belong. I mean, and theirs were far more exacerbated. So I, I think where some of that comes from is like people go into psychology to understand, maybe in part themselves, but also people around them. You know, so I, mm -hmm. I could say like part of me found an interest in psychology because I did really want to understand, you know, maybe why I do some of the things that I do and not like extreme you know, maladaptive behaviors, but just basic things like, why do I like this thing? Why am I interested in this community? Uh, why do I want to be a psychologist? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah, that, but yeah, no, the line between who was a patient and who was the psychologist was very thin in this movie. Yeah, exceptionally so. Everyone had their issues. Everyone had some, maybe with the exception of, uh, of, of Little Oldman. I think he was, mm -hmm. he was absolutely fine, except for his sleeping thing, but. That was weird. <laughs> Perfectly normal old psychologist. I loved at the beginning when he was like, working here, I'm paid to be a consultant, which is a fancy part-time gig where I just walk in and don't bother anybody and they don't bother me and I get a check. <laughs> I was like, that's goals right there. Yeah. I want to be a little olden. <laughs> I, I've, I've heard that a lot. I've, um, I mean, both, both the aspect of kind of like the view of psychologists or psychiatrists in this case is all being tied to helping people regardless of who you are is something that you just get beat with over your head if you're a psychology major. Everyone's like, well, there's plenty of people around here who need help. I'm like, I don't care about that. I'm not that kind of psychologist. Mm -hmm. And then the, the, the problem stuff, because that's definitely something I've heard before. That's definitely something that, that I maybe said in jest before. Um, but I, I know pl plenty of well-rounded psychologists. People ask me that all the time. Like, not all the time, but if they're comfortable enough with me, they're like, so why are you studying sex again? Do you, it, it, are you trying to learn for you? And I was like, mm, no, I'm not learning for me. I'm, no, that, that's good. It's just a fun topic. <laughs> There were two, I think, two sharp criticisms of psychology in this show that I thought were, like, very pointed and correct. The first one, like we said at the beginning, well, I guess there's one of them less so now, but definitely at the time was that this anxiety around getting trapped in a institution and incorrectly diagnosed and not being let out ever. We'll have to do an episode at one at one point on some of the famous cases of like the reporters, mm -hmm. the people who had themselves committed and then couldn't get out because they were mm -hmm. completely believed because that's how easy it was. So that was one thing that I appreciated about the show was this idea that like, once you're in, they can hold you there for any reason and they don't have to believe you. So I thought that was well done. And then the other thing I thought was well done was the monetary incentive for doing that so like the whole motive of the 
antagonist was to keep control, keep everyone in the facility to keep collecting the money. But also at the beginning, I remember, uh, I don't know if you remember, but little Oldman was like, and what's the most important thing? And he's like, never take a personal check. Yep. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, there's oh. there, there was also a, a note uh, in, in when he was, after he sings the song, when they're at the bar mm-hmm. where she's like, Oh, you could go into professional singing. Have you ever thought of that? And he's like, Oh, there's no, there, there's more money in psychiatry. He's like, Oh, but the, the joy and the, mm-hmm. the personal, or even at the end. Of, yeah. Or even at the end of his uh, speech, when he like pointed up at the psychologists and he was like such and such and so, and so, but they sure gave us a great life. Yeah. It was very, very much, uh, very much a critique on the, the cost. And, mm-hmm. and how my, I'm guessing it's it's you know amount of money to amount of help, mm-hmm. and, and it which makes sense why Brothers was up there. Yes, uh, being a pop psychologist and getting all of her book deals and TV shows and stuff like that. The reality, on the other hand, is that maybe I mean maybe I don't know what psychiatrists make on average, though clinical psychology is arguably more lucrative than experimental psychology unless you're writing a lot of books or you're one of like the couple of big names you know who are kind of at the top of the list of most published people in the world mm-hmm. yeah maybe maybe you're getting speaking fees and you're getting other stuff and but for the average person no not so much no we can't all get those good consulting fees no or get on the uh public speaking route either I was watching, actually last night, uh, Wisecrack did a in-depth look at public intellectuals right now and thought leaders, and they brought up the psychologist. Let me pull up her name real quick. Um, but she's the one that did the power pose study. Amy Cuddy. Amy Cuddy, yes. Um, and so the idea that like we can, you can move up in your career and climb up the social, social hierarchy if you just do a power pose. Um, and that gave her tons of speaking opportunities and corporate trainings and TED talks and stuff like that. And it completely drowned out all of her other research that looked at more harder topics about inequality and uh, social justice issues and prejudice and bias because all of these corporations, it's a lot easier to have the psychologist come on and talk about how their employees just need to do a power pose than all of her other writings that looked at the social inequalities and institutional inequalities that were going on. And so if you want to be like, you know, a psychologist that is that public speaker, that is that quote unquote thought leader, you have to distill your research into such a uh, benign corporate friendly bit of information that they can, you know, hire you for that doesn't threaten their bottom line. Yeah. And so really well-meaning psychologists get into that Ted talk tier and make that money in the pop psych, but their actual research that they do gets pushed to the side and it doesn't get as publicized anymore. We'll have to talk about her at some point when we get into our kind of controversies and stuff, because she had a, um, a really hard fall because her co- mm-hmm. co-authors basically threw her under the bus. That's, you know, some of the replication stuff on her research didn't pan out as well. And instead of mm-hmm. saying like, maybe we should rethink about this, like they apparently attacked her hard 
she also, I mean, mm -hmm. like lots of like angry emails, like kind of got involved in, in a lot of that like pushback. And, you know, again, is this, is this because, you know, like, like looking at like a, a lot of different factors that, that, that may have caused it, but I, I really felt like it was, it was really disheartening to read like the follow-up story of, of what happened with that, because I would argue she was heavily mistreated in terms of, mm -hmm. of the pushback because she got a lot of popularity because of that. And it was sort of that, like the higher they rise, the harder they fall, but it was almost like people looking for that chance to bring, bring someone back down. And, mm -hmm. and there were a lot of people who jumped on that opportunity and it was really, so what controversies in psychology was really kind of disgusting. I watched that just last night. I was like, oh man, this is bleak. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so. it just, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have to get back on that. So you know, talk about mm -hmm. the, the pop, the pop psych side and the difference even between like maybe kind of something that borders on that level, but is still grounded in academia versus when it has to get popular, you have to condense it down to, maybe meaninglessness. Yeah, because even like intuitively, like the power pose just in of itself seems ridiculous. Like I saw that and I was like, I mean, yeah, like fake it till you make it. But like, that's so minimal. That's so, but like I didn't, I was, I don't know. Like it felt weird. Like it's just, it felt like the, like, I don't know. It felt like pop psych nonsense as soon as I heard about it. But there was an actual article. They, they did some so research. I that was impressive, at least. Yeah, like, she did follow research protocol. It just didn't replicate. So, yeah, no, if you want to be a well-paid psychologist, it's going to cost you in a lot. You've got to sell your soul to an extent. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, what do we want to rate this? So, I guess as a movie, and then... I don't know. It, it, I, I think this one's difficult if we, if we do both the as a movie and as the psychology movie. Yeah. Because we can't rate it historically. I think I think no, some of the but I mean I feel like I feel like we can do the the separate ratings. Cause I mean, if I were to rate it as a psych movie, I'd probably give it like an eight. Like an eight out of ten? Just yeah, like an eight out of ten. Because there was a fair criticism of psychiatry and psychoanalysis that was very grounded in the time. I thought that the airplane, the airport scene with the love interest was like a great social psych moment. And there were a lot of, you know, I could see using this movie in an intro class to facilitate some conversation. So I thought that the utility was pretty good. Yeah, there were a lot of, there were a lot of callbacks to, to where either it, it looks like he did some research or at least looked up like who are just some famous psychologist names. We'll we'll sprinkle them in as the characters. Like it was very fitting. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of nods that were funny, and I think funnier if you're a psychologist. Mm -hmm. um, and and then especially if we're talking about this in the time it was written, you know, if in 2020 it would be a terrible psychology movie unless you were also <laughs> having it set 1977, or, you know, in the 1970s as a movie. Uh, that that kind of pays homage or that stereotype psychology it did do it in in a very it was very extreme kind of over the top way but it's a comedy it's a Mel Brooks comedy on top of that that it's going to be over the top yeah that I, I could definitely see definitely see yeah, like, like a seven was, or an eight yeah seven or eight like I'm not mad at it yeah there was no point 
because I could, we, we, we could probably pick other movies where the main character is a psychologist and just probably be disgusted. Yes. And, but in this case, it, it kind of fit. It, it, him being a psychologist kind of just played into a lot of the stuff. And it was just part of that, that you know, it's just that's the character. Mm-hmm. For the most part, it was kind of played straight. I mean, the stuff that they did was a bit over the top, but it was still played very, very straight. Like this is, I mean, to be fair, like you, you could say it was a huge exaggeration. In a lot of cases, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, I'll go with you on that. Yeah, as as a movie, ten. Yeah, it's uh, it's up there. I mean, I can't I can't not give most Mel Brooks movies a high rating on my list of just favorite movies of all time, movies that I grew up with. Mm-hmm. And so definitely, yeah, this was actually one that I remember seeing bits and pieces of when I was much younger. But I, it's probably been twenty twenty five, maybe you know, maybe twenty twenty five years since I've, I've at least twenty years since I've seen anything of this movie. And so it was basically like watching it fresh. And I think it'd be better watching it now than it than it was when I was when I was younger and. Something like, you know, Robin Hoodman in Tights or History of the World Part One would be a much better Mel Brooks movie for me, for young me. But now this is this is definitely high on my list. So, mm-hmm. so. and also I'm just a huge Alfred Hitchcock fanboy. And so any movie that does like, you know, Alfred Hitchcock tropes and just incorporates them beautifully into the script, just I love it. I'll eat it up. So yeah, 10 out of 10, highly recommend the movie. And it's it's definitely a good one if you want to start or facilitate some psychology conversation or talk even about some criticisms of, of early psychology. It, it's also a bit of a good look. I, I think a much, a much more palatable look if you want to talk about some of the systems or at least have a class, you know, get a couple of laughs out of it. And a couple of scenes maybe don't work so well in 2020 as, mm-hmm. as they did in 1977 uh but yeah definitely hits a lot of marks and um i was thinking about comparing this as like a movie about an asylum to like shutter island mm-hmm. maybe have your class watch this <laughs> yeah this is a good one I'm trying to think yeah no like mel brooks movies they age well yeah yeah i mean for, for the bat again i think with the exception of that scene at the beginning with the guy bringing him into the bathroom mm-hmm I think with the exception of that, everything else in this movie ages fine. Yeah, I, I think it all hits the marks. That was just the only part of the movie that I was kind of cringing a little bit at. I was like, you know, I get it. It's 1970s movie. You've got this over-the-top, homo, you know, homosexual character. It just mm-hmm. doesn't hit the same way as it would have in 1977. But as a white homosexual... It's not as bad as most 1970s renditions of my fellow gays. Like, this is very, very light. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, yeah, I got the cringe a little bit, but I've seen way worse. It could have been so much worse. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to blind eye that one. All right. Yeah. So highly recommend 10 out of 10 on movie quality, 8 out of 10 on psychology quality, uh, maybe a seven and a half if you want to be a little, you know, a little more critical uh, of it. Yeah, seven and a half seems fair. Yeah. So, but overall, uh, really enjoyable. Definitely, definitely worth the rent on on something like Amazon Prime or the buy. 
mean, you pay 10, mm-hmm. 10 bucks, you can get, get yourself a copy of this movie easily. So definitely worth it. So yeah. So uh, until then, until the next psychosocial distancing at the cinema or distancing cinema. Uh, distancing cinema. <laughs> I will figure out a better name for it next time. So yeah, until then, uh, goodbye. Goodbye.